bring you greetings in the name of the Lord this morning. I was uh, had to think um, when we um, have a Sunday school lesson like we do, uh, what what more does the preacher have to say <laughs> on Easter Sunday? Um, so I thought, will we have a Easter message? Certainly we haven't exhausted the subject uh, in the Sunday school. Um, I have a book I got um, a number of years ago, 1969, it says, uh, The Resurrected Life. Uh, this book is written by uh, John R. Mumaw, and uh, it um, actually he gave these uh, uh, these are are lectures that uh, were called are called uh, Conrad Grebel lectures. Um, uh, they were uh, given in uh, the conference churches. Actually, uh, when we were in the North Central Conference one uh, one summer, he gave these lectures at our uh, at our meetings. Um, there were others written, um, and this one uh, I thought that I would use some of the things that are in here for the message this morning. I'm going to be reading a few uh, excerpts from this book. Also reading from uh, the scriptures as well. I'll start out by reading an Easter story. And you may have heard this story before. This happened shortly after the Red Russian Revolution had become a raging reality. The atheistic society of the militant godless was in active operation, sending lectures all over Russia under government auspices. It was an organized attempt to destroy the Christian faith among the common people. One of the most brilliant lectures appeared in a town hall one evening where thousands of peasants were assembled. He spoke for more than an hour, lashing out against Christianity, which he claimed was denying the rights of the Russian citizens. He ridiculed faith, he insulted Christ, and mocked the Bible. The entire audience sat motionless and reserved. At last, the speaker invited questions. Not a person raised his hand. An old man arose to his feet in the back and started coming up the outside aisle. His long white hair and flowing gray beard and typical long Russian coat and high boots and a loud, firm tramp toward the platform attracted the attention of the entire crowd. When he reached the platform, he stood before the lecturer in stony silence. He was invited to ask his question, but the old man's silence was finally broken with a step toward the audience. Very slowly, he raised both arms toward heaven and turned his face upward. Then he shouted the traditional Easter greeting, which Russian 
peasants have given each other on Easter morning for many generations. Christ is risen. As the old man's greeting floated across that large assembly and re-echoed in the hearts of the people, the audience stood to their feet as one man and shouted back, Christ is risen indeed. The brave old man's witness rekindled into a flame the testimony of faith that remained uncrushed in the hearts of a sturdy people. The title of my message this morning, the focus of the re resurrection message. Many things are uh, seen as a part of Easter celebration. Uh, some of these things are proper, some improper. Um, there's, in the society today, there'll be people who go to church who never darken the church door most of the year, but they'll go on Easter Sunday. There's Easter lilies, there's bunnies, there's bonnets, clothes. I, I read a, a newspaper that I get from up north where we used to live. I had a, a the editor wrote a little story about her girlhood and how her mother was so um, so fussy about their clothes on Easter Sunday. And uh, had a little story about their experience of uh, their little brother getting a sears, a shears and uh, cutting a hole in one of the dresses and her mother had to stay up all night to, to uh, redo it. Uh, there was, that was important to them, Easter Sunday dresses. I remember before our family were Christians, uh, my parents used to color eggs. Uh, we stopped that after we became Christians. Uh, eggs of different colors and designs. All of these, all of these little um, uh, things that people observe on Easter that I mentioned. Um, Maybe there's no harm in them, but uh, what uh, what significance is it? Uh, how do eggs and bunnies and bonnets and clothes and all of that uh, fit into the um, the idea of Christ uh, coming forth out of the grave? Um, they have their explanations of well, it's spring, you know, and and uh, spring brings out new things and so there's a lot of different ideas about this. These are some of the uh, things that society looks at in Easter. The church, however, looks more at uh, the Passion Week, crucifixion and burial, the empty tomb, earthquake, angels, Jesus' grave clothes, The, um, and actually these things uh, uh, as well are 
perhaps not should not be our primary focus. You know, we we think of uh, the death of Christ and his work on the cross and so on. Um, but there's there's something far greater and far um, more important to focus on than that, because uh, Jesus is not in the tomb. Uh, the the cross is empty. There's there's no one on the cross. Jesus is not on the cross. <clears throat> and uh, I've read different uh, accounts of this shroud that they think might have been uh, the one Jesus was buried in, uh, Shroud of Tehran, I think it's called. And uh, I think they've spent hundreds of dollars or maybe thousands trying to figure out whether this actually was uh, the shroud that was in uh, that Jesus had on him when he was in the grave. Those things are, they're all primary. But there is one thing that is, that ought to be our focus. I'm going to read what that is. Revelation. Revelation 1, starting at verse 10. This is John, the revelator, writing, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, his white, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they were burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. The, um, the, our primary focus uh, is not on the death, although we don't want to, I don't want to in any way minimize the work of Christ on the cross. Um, but our primary focus needs to be on a, a living Christ, a living Savior. And uh, I'd like to read a few things from this book. If I can find the right pages here now. This, uh, for a large section of Christendom, the cross has been used as a predominating symbol of its faith. Too long, indeed, in the formulation of doctrinal salvation has the church left Christ on the cross. 
and presumed that his saving work was finished with the crucifixion. Uh, I, I think of uh, several years ago when they made the movie The Passion of Christ, and it it um, it centered it, it based it was based on his suffering and uh, the, the the whips and uh, the nails and whatever, and I didn't didn't see that. Uh, I don't intend to. But someone told me that when the movie ended, Christ was still in the grave. Uh, this is a little bit how society perhaps looks at it. We have been exposed to prevailing thought of atonement as explained in terms of sacrifice, uh, satisfaction of God's justice, payment of our debt and revelation of God's love. Why has the church overlooked the saving significance of the event of the resurrection? Actually, this was the, the crucial event. The Christian is delivered from death to a newness of life by the power of the resurrection. What other than the doctrine of the resurrection is the basis of Christian victory? Herein lies the real heart of Christianity. We exalt the living Savior. The reality of faith is discovered in a spiritual union with a person who is alive. Where do we see the symbol of the resurrection? Who will frame a picture of the open tomb representing the radiant life, light of the resurrection glory? I'm gonna do a little drawing here. I, didn't, I tried this on a little piece of paper at home. And my wife says, what's that? <laughs> so uh, I hope this is dark enough to see. Uh, and this is not an original drawing of me. I saw this depicted one other time. impressed me when I saw that drawing. Um, the stone is gone, rolled away, the tomb is empty, uh, the cross is no longer needed for Christ, the uh, nails are gone, Joseph and, and uh, Nicodemus took care of those when they took Jesus off the cross. Uh, no longer is the uh, no longer is the crucifixion the focus the focus is the empty tomb the resurrection the theology of the cross is inadequate as a central message of Christianity a fragmentation of the body of Christ occurred with rigid institutional lines drawn on the basis of varying interpretations of the cross and differing theories of atonement. There is less potential for disagreement in the meaning of the resurrection. Christian unity is more likely to be achieved in the bright light of the open tomb than it ever was at the gloomy foot of the cross. And, uh, you know, we, we think of uh, all of the varying... Um, interpretations of atonement 
And uh, all the way from once saved, always saved to um, a work salvation. Um, and people are, uh, you know, churches divide over those things. But um, the church, scarred and battered with bitter doctrinal struggles over the place of Calvary, must move on to the open tomb and see the resources of practical and powerful living. The reality of the resurrection gives light to the meaning of, the eternal, of eternal life. It is the truth of the resurrection that guides the believer to abundant living. Upon the, resource, upon the resurrection of Christ hangs the meaning of faith. This is the key to the gospel we preach. This is the truth by which we live. This is the context out of which springs our eternal hope. I'm not sure uh, who F.E. Marsh is, but he summarized the, um, the resurrection in this way. And I have several, uh, it's a list here, and I have several verses that go along with it. Uh, he says that uh, the resurrection is, first of all, the greatest fact of history. Uh, and so let's turn to Acts, the first chapter. And I'll read the first four verses. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. <clears throat> we'll read another scripture that talks about that as well. Not only was it the greatest fact of history, it's the greatest evidence of Christianity. And this is uh, some verses from Romans, Romans 1, also the first part of the chapter. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to me an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he himself afore by his prophets, um, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ." He talks there about the gospel, uh, the gospel, the good news of Christianity, and how it was declared, how Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead, the greatest evidence of Christianity. The next one is the greatest exhibition of God's power. Uh, Ephesians 1. 
And the verses there are um, verses 19 to 23. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Speaking of the mighty power of God that brought forth the Lord Jesus out of the grave. It's not only the greatest exhibition of God's power, but also the greatest truth of the gospel. First uh, Corinthians 15, 1-8, which I guess was already read this morning, but I'm going to read it again. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which was also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas and none of the twelve. And after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under the present, and some are, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. <clears throat> also, the resurrection event is the greatest reality to faith. First uh, Thessalonians 4. And I'll read, uh, starting at verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this, is, for this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And also... It is the event is the greatest assurance of coming glory. And uh, back again to 1 Corinthians 15. I think Brother Dwight read to the 19th verse. He also read the 20th verse. I'm going to read a little bit beyond there. Uh, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection. of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, and when he, has, he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did, not, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Also, the resurrection event is a, is a great incentive to holiness. Uh, turn with me to Romans, the 6th chapter, and it mentions here uh, also the resurrection. I'll read, um, I'll read verses 8 through 14 in Romans 6. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the luster of. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. An incentive to holy living. An incentive to victory over sin. And so, our theology of the resurrection uh, must be based on faith in the historical fact. And uh, now I'm reading again from this book. It tells, he tells a little bit here about some of the modern, uh, modernist ideas of the resurrection. And uh, this is what it says. The doctrine of the resurrection has been a focal point of critical attack from the very beginning. The Sadducees denied, it there was, denied that there was any resurrection. The, the Gnostics perverted the meaning of the resurrection. Later in history, the opposition came by default. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church neglected it by undue emphasis upon the crucifix. In the days of liberal theology, and he mentions a, a theologian here, I can't, it sounds like a German name, I can't pronounce it, and others denied the reality of the miraculous. The modern currents of thought are flowing in another direction. Some influential contemporary theologians explain the doctrine of the resurrection in terms of what the early disciples believed rather than in the terms of what happened. Some insist that the matter of primary concern is not historical event, but the meaning of the faith. A great amount of effort is being spent in extracting truths from ancient cultural concepts and rephrasing them in comparable modern concepts and expressing them in contemporary style. This process emphasizes that the scholars, what the scholars think people believed rather than what has been established as a historical fact. Some go so far as to regard belief as more important than fact. Strangely enough, the consensus of contemporary opinion attaches a great deal of importance to the idea of resurrection and recognizes the central place it held in the theology of the early church. 
The fundamental, fundamental weakness of their position is the denial of bodily resurrection. These moderns keep pressing philosophical issues. When the resurrection is detached from a secure basis in history, it follows that all Christian truth is dismissed from the realm of fact. And I'm going to read that again. When the resurrection is detached from a secure basis in history, it follows that all Christian truth is dismissed from the realm of fact. The general tone of modern thinking is too far to the left of the evangelical center. The current use of scientific method to deliver the meaning of Christian doctrine is producing an anemic faith. It moves away from the miraculous. Many scholars do not seem to realize that God is not discoverable or demonstrable by purely scientific means. Men can observe with detachment the incident of death and explain the process of physical deterioration. The physical elements of dying can be analyzed and codified, but there is no scientific explanation for resurrection from the dead. To know the meaning of the resurrection, one must be attached to the resurrected one. Eternal life is obtained through an unreserved acceptance of the living Christ and an honest commitment to him as the risen Lord. The church cannot make Christ's resurrection or ours credible by the aid of natural science, any more than she can assure men of forgiveness of sin without God. Preaching the gospel of salvation presupposes that Christ who created life is now victorious over the destruction of life. His resurrection is the gateway to eternal realities. And that's, that's important, to, to realize that we cannot explain uh, and prove uh, things with, uh, in scientific ways. Uh, I think the verse in, uh, I'm not sure just where it is, where it says that we, uh, uh, I hath not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But God, through his Spirit, has, has revealed them to us. And so we need to lay aside um, scientific proofs and things like that for, for uh, uh, Christian principles. And we need to accept by faith what Christ has done for us. <clears throat> The Christian religion is unique because of the resurrection of its founder. And two little, two more little Easter stories here. Years ago, there was a missionary in Turkey who was having great difficulty making the Mohammedans understand why they should trust in Jesus Christ. One day he was traveling with some Muslims along an unmarked road when they came to a fork in the road, and at this point there was a tomb of a Mohammedan holy man. While they were trying to decide which fork to take, the missionary said, Let's go to that tomb and ask the dead man. They all protested. The dead man can give us no information. See that little house over there? Let's go there and ask a living man. You're quite right, said the missionary. Never forget that Mohammed is dead. He can give you no help or information. In him is no life. But Jesus Christ is alive, and he will give you eternal life if you will trust in him as your Savior. 
a missionary to India, was watching a religious parade giving honor to Buddha. A bone had been found that was ascribed to the body of Buddha, their prophet. It was presented to the city with fanatical fervor. Thousands bowed in veneration before this relic. The Christian missionary turned to his Indian friend and described the vast difference between his faith and theirs. He explained that if any part of the body of Jesus were to be found, it would be great cause of dismay because it would prove the Christian religion false. The Christian's faith in the living Christ is supported by the abundant evidence that God raised him bodily from the dead. Then in closing, I want to read another excerpt here. Um, True belief in the resurrection must make a difference from society in general. And this is what uh, John R. Moomar writes here. He quotes uh, Menno Simons here. He says, Menno Simons, with his concept of the church walking in the resurrection, insisted that Christianity requires self-discipline and commitment that by its very nature makes a believer so different from people of the world that it will be evident to all. He allowed no compromise of the scripture to the times and no accommodation to, be, to behavior and the demands of the flesh. The church has lived, church has always lived in crisis, but the issues presenting the crisis have not always been the same. Today we face a combination of factors that has intensified its peril. We will have to answer in word and deed the extent to which we can adopt the standards of the world as a controlling factor in the Christian behavior. How closely may we be identified with the prevailing culture without losing our identification with the church? The ways of the world in our time have secularized thought and aspiration so thoroughly that the church tends to operate on the basis of human judgment alone. We have become so accustomed to the bold expressions of sensuality that we tend to allow indulgences in direct conflict with Christian ethics. We might as well face it. If and when the standards of general society are accepted, as the practical norms of the church, the Christian witness of the resurrection will be lost. The church cannot be partaker of the world's sin and hope to deliver men from it. It cannot take on the mold of an evil society and hope to thereby transform the life of the community. For the church to accept the secular social order is a betrayal of Christ and his redeeming purpose. When a church easily conforms to the contemporary culture, forfeiting its claims to a distinctive witness, it is on its way to spiritual bankruptcy. If the church wants to stop the dissipation of spiritual resources, it will have to pay more attention to the meaning of the resurrection message. We must stop apologizing for being different and let our light shine in love, loving devotion to the loving, living Lord. Let us refuse to take our cues from the world and seek earnestly the mind of the risen Christ. Let us no longer drift with the sweeping currents of change, but rise in obedience to the teaching of the New Testament. Let us no longer live by the rule of expediency, but dare to live 
under the rule of heaven. Let us no longer follow the line of accommodation, but take the road of courageous and compelling conviction. I hope that can be the desire of each of us here this morning. That we will certainly uh, remember the resurrection, put the focus where it needs to be, on Christ's resurrection and new life, uh, a, new, a new life that's different from the old, a new life that's different from society around us, a new life that someday will be finished when we reach that other shore.